1: No. Good evening, Merry Christmas, and welcome to a special Christmas edition of Lifeline we're calling An Old-Fashioned Christmas. I'm your host, Greg Roberts. For the next couple of hours, we thought we'd do something very special by turning back the clock and experiencing what radio was like on Christmas's past. Though so much has changed in our nation in the last few decades with political correctness, the change in direction of the willingness to be open about and bold about one's faith, even the hesitation to wish people Merry Christmas for fear someone might be We thought this time of year it would be important to look back at how things once were, with not just a longing to return, but the goal, prayer, and desire to work in the coming year to change things and set our nation back on the right course and the right direction, glorifying Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and acknowledging the Christian roots of our nation. So as together we experience an old-fashioned Christmas, we'll give a listen to some old radio dramas from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Tonight we start with a program called The Lullaby of Christmas, produced by the Family Theater and hosted by Roddy McDowell. So many of the audio colors and textures in this next half hour will no doubt bring the light to your heart and joy to your soul as you listen to Roddy McDowell narrating The Lullaby of Christmas from December 19th of 1951. It's our old-fashioned Christmas gift to you on this Christmas edition of Lifeline from KFAX. Bye.
2: Roddy
4: McDowell and Lois Butler.
5: You know, one of the wonderful things about Christmas is the pretty web of song and story that has grown up around it without obscuring for any of us, I hope, the truth of the matter.
4: Out of the fact that the real truth of Christmas is so wonderful, so dramatic, so quickening to the heart. And that leads us to Lullaby of Christmas. is as old as Christmas, and yet is neither remembered nor told except by the tongueless ones, the water, the wind, the rain, and the snow, by the grasses, the trees, the rocks, and the earth. They have told the story for almost 2,000 Christmases past, and they'll still be telling it 2,000 times 2,000 Christmases to come. It will be told by a wind rustling a tree of palm or pine, or of maple or mimosa, By water as he crowds against the bank or shore of brook, lake, river and ocean, and all the scattered seven seas. By rain tiptoeing across the roofs and skylights of every building north, east, south, and west of Greenwich. By the singing grasses of southern pampas, bush, and savannah, and by the icy twang of sleet and stubble on prairie, heath, and plain. It will be told by the sucking swamp mud and the hard ringing frozen earth and the tumbling rock and the migrant sand. It will be told whether or not men listen or whether or not there are men to listen. For as the storytellers are eternal, so is their story eternal. Their story of the lullaby of Christmas. Whenever someone looked in his direction and bellowed, hey, you, he came running because he was eager to please, but A.U. wasn't his name. No one knew from whence he came, or when, or how, or why. It was quite possible that he was a forlorn and useless bit of jetsam from one of the caravans that were forever appearing and disappearing like mirages, with camel bells clanging, dogs barking, and drivers howling for right of way through the narrow crowded roadways of Bethlehem. He might have been eight. Or he could have been nine a childish collection of angles and knobs with an animated pipe stem on each corner for an arm or leg his clothing was an assortment of tattered rags fastened together with knots thorns and bits of cord and it stayed with him when he ran merely because his greater speed was never quite equal to the greater law of gravity And he was always running to something from something. His sandals, which had been owned and discarded by three much larger wearers, flapping up and down and right and left, and his bobbing head perching precariously on his scrawny little neck like a fledgling heron on one leg. And yet, there was something about the boy that made people notice him there was something appealing in his dark eyes and something about his cherub's mouth that unlocked the heart. Now and then, someone along the street would stop him and ask his name. But when A.U. tried to answer, from out of his cherub's mouth instead of words would come a horrible sound, a scourging, piercing, ear-scraping, howling and shrieking. Yes, A.U. was without the gift of speech. And at night, in the stable of the inn where he made his bed, he would curl up in the fragrant hay and think of all the beautiful magic words that he would like to say. Just suppose... Just suppose that a miracle should take place during the night. Just suppose that he should wake up tomorrow morning and walk over to that stall and say, Good morning, Mr. Cow. Oh, wonderful. And then he'd run outside to the pen and call out, Hello, Mr. Sheep. Oh, magnificent morning. He could talk. He could say anything and everything that he wanted to say. And wouldn't the innkeeper's wife be surprised when she handed out the scraps for his breakfast and loudly and clearly he said, I'm terrible obliged, ma'am, Just terrible obliged. And then when he was called to do some task or errand, he could tell the innkeeper and his guests that his name wasn't A.U. Why, that wasn't any kind of name at all. It was just an easy and careless way they all had of shouting, Hey, you. Hey, you. My name isn't A.U. Hey, don't you hear me? Hey, you. My name's Ezekiel. But the most stupendous, overwhelming thing of all, he would be able to sing. Yes, sing as no one had ever sung before. With every word and note so clear and sweet and perfect that everyone in Bethlehem would stand rock still to listen. He would be able to sing with the other children when they played their games. And would be able to sing right along with the foreign music maker. The one with the lyre and the tame bear who walked the roadways and sang for coins. Oh, Babylon. the roaring fire was juggling fat hot sparks in the black cavern chimney and the innkeeper and his guests were overflowing with wine and song he'd never need hide himself in the darkest corner in fear that they would make him join in just so that they could laugh at him no he'd be able to stand right by the fire and listen because he'd be able to sing that song much better than anyone in the room oh fill the bowl up to the
3: brim that memory blend with wine and drink
4: So, each night, before A.U. closed his eyes, he said a prayer for the gift of speech and song, and faithfully promised that if God saw fit to grant these great blessings to a small boy, that he would never use any words that weren't kind and gentle and reverent, and that he would never sing any songs that were not beautiful, joyful, and harmonious. Then he burrowed deep into the hay and fell asleep, warm and content in his belief that on this night, God had heard him In the morning, when the rising sun reached through the doorway and touched his shoulder to wake him up... He would open his eyes... And then he'd open his mouth... And then very loudly and thankfully he'd say... Oh, thank you, God!
0: Thank you very much!
4: But, morning after morning, God disappointed him. And finally, after months of mornings had vanished into Egypt... Ayu knew that he would always be just as he was, as inarticulate as a tumblebug, as a woodtick, as a worm. For a few nights, A. U. cried himself to sleep in black discouragement. And then, then he resolved that he would never open his mouth again to make people laugh. And when his work was done, he trudged out of Bethlehem and wandered over the fields and hills. Travelers sometimes wondered when they saw his lonely little figure against the sky. And none of them knew that he really wasn't lonely at all. Why, he couldn't be lonely among friends.
3: Oh.
4: For he discovered that a brook running over its pebbles and stones could chatter and prattle and sing to him. If he answered, or even if he sang, the brook didn't care a ripple that the noises he made were strange and unmusical. It went right along singing as loudly and joyfully as ever. Yes, and the winds were forever whispering or humming or caroling. Sometimes they were so filled with music that they shook their great trees and woke them up, and they tossed the great limbs and made every leaf and twig join in with the singing. So A, you sang too didn't care, and the winds didn't care. Neither did the rain when it thrummed on the rocks or strummed through the tall grasses. It went right on just as though his horrible din was the most sublime music it has ever heard. And then, when he was tired, Ayu would lie on the ground with his ear pressed tight against the moss and listen to the small, faraway voices. The little, scarcely audible voices deep in the ever-moving, ever-singing earth itself. The song they sang was very sweet, but so faint and distant that try as he might, he could never learn a melody. And so, listening to his friends, the tongueless ones, Ayu would fall fast asleep. that followed he was a little scarecrow stuffed with happiness a standing on tiptoe happiness that was more prolific than a cottontail rabbit an invincible conquering happiness that could summon up more legions than the roman emperor it was so far above the miracle he'd asked for in his prayers that Ayu took a long time every night to thank god for his generosity he thanked him so meticulously and particularly and abundantly that his small fingers developed a cramp and on each round knobby knee was a round knobby callus. And then, without the slightest warning, coming with cockcrow as any other day, wearing the same identical colors of dawn as yesterday's beneficent morning, came the dreadful day. It was begun by the innkeeper kicking methodically at the mound of hay where you had buried himself and bawling, hey, oh, come on, crawl
3: out of there and get to work." Find your feet or I'll slice out your tongue and sell it for tallow.
4: Then the dreadful day was helped along by the innkeeper's fat and fuming wife. At mid-morning, when AU's stomach was tied in a double-bow knot with hunger, he stuck one eye around the frame of the kitchen door to let it beg for his breakfast. And the innkeeper's wife doused him with slimy dishwater and screamed, Don't come grunting and squealing for scraps at my door when I'm busy, you miserable gutter rubbish. Get out with the rest of the swine. <laughs> And in the afternoon, as A.U. was racing through the town on one of his endless errands, a tired thong snapped on one of his oversized sandals, and the sand went skittering through the air, purposely ignoring half a dozen people who would have merely scowled or scolded, and dropped deliberately and maliciously on the proud and helmeted head of a swaggering centurion the centurion plucked you out of the crowd by his rags and lifted him up off the ground and held him dangling at arm's length, demanding his name and his dwelling place. And when you tried to answer, but only made meaningless sounds, the centurion shook him until he flipped and flopped like a limp, grief-stricken starfish, and he bellowed, Look
3: at me, oh, you dribbling, babbling, voiceless offshoot of a scurvy, dribble-mouthed dally rat! If ever again you foul my eyes, I'll cade you and send you to Rome to feed the emperor's lions
4: through the remaining hours of the dreadful day's afternoon, no matter how fast he ran, the story of his affliction and humiliation always ran faster. It was a street, an alley, or even a doorway ahead of him. He seemed to run through a, a forest of pointing fingers that threatened to pin him to a wall, under a sky of leering eyes that fell and clung to him like leeches, by endless craters of jeering mouths that spouted laughter like bottomless goatskin skin water bag. And that night, as each hour slowly yielded to an older one, and the dreadful day neared its end, A.U. was kept late at his task in the inn. Anyone could believe that half the known world had journeyed to Bethlehem, and the inn was so crowded that the ancient floors seemed to sag from the mass weight of weary bone and unwashed flesh. A.U. longed to bury his shame and tears in the nestling warmth of the stable hay. His tired, trembling legs carried him about with staggering armloads of steaming bowls and slopping mugs. He tripped him up, hands hand slapped his ears to ringing, and his knees jolted his aching ribs. The one who discovered and recognized A.U. was a huge mountain of a man whose eyes rolled like quicksilver in their beefed beds of jelly fat. One hairy paw crushed a plummet from his beard, while the other fastened on A.U.'s hair and lifted him, his legs still running desperately in the air, to the tabletop. Then, in a voice that would have silenced Donkey, he brayed to the listening ears, Look
3: here, my friends! Oh, Behold this miserable insect that I've captured for your examination and amusement. You must gather close with ears agape because this struggling thing has a wondrous golden voice never equal on land or sea or up in heaven. <laughs> oh yes, I yes, swear well, it is true. A centurion made a chirp today and its music was so sweet it broke my heart and made the angels weep in ecstasy. like a crows, so you can speak like a human, eh? Sing, I tell you! Sing, sing!
4: And so, standing on the table, A.U. tried to sing. And at every tuneless howl, the crowd shocked its mockery. At every unmelodious screech, it roared its derision. At every discordant squeak, it loosed a thunderbolt of laughter that crashed and splintered on his head. And his mind was fear. And his body was shame. And his blood was tears. But he went on. He went on until the crowd had rung the last outstanding of four. The final satisfying chuckle. The ultimate forced snigger from his wretched little body. And when it released him, he ran blindly off through the dark labyrinth of Bethlehem, a terror stricken shadow racing for the quiet hills and the warm, comforting voices of the tongueless ones. But tonight there were no voices. Even though A.U. held his breath, even though he strained his ears, he could hear no sound from the tongueless ones. Even when he threw himself down and laid his ear to the ground, there was no small sound to hear. Even the little voices deep in the earth had stopped their whispering and were quiet. Then he howled and babbled and tried to make the tongueless ones answer him. But they only waited and listened. And he croaked and screamed at them. But still they waited and listened. And he wept and shrieked to them. But they kept silent while they waited and listened, just listened and waited. Then Ayu rolled over on his back to listen, too. And he saw that a great white star had risen and was shining over Bethlehem. A star so bright it blinded him. And so he closed his eyes. And exhausted by the dreadful day, he went to sleep. It was close to morning when Ayu returned to the inn. He tiptoed across the frosty stones of the dark courtyard and crept into the stable. For a moment, his fear held him motionless, for the stable was bathed with a bright glowing radiance that revealed every corner and straw and peg and moat of dust, and it flowed like molten sunlight over a man and a woman and a manger, where a child was cradled. Neither the man nor the woman appeared surprised to see A.U., It was as though they had expected him to come and were waiting for him. So he stole nearer and he looked down at the child and the child lifted small hands and smiled at him. Then A.U. felt that he must speak to this child. So he whispered, Hello there. And the words he spoke were as clear and melodious as the water of the brook. Then he said,
5: Hello child.
4: And the words that came from his lips were as sweet as the winds as perfect as each raindrop and as soft as the long flowing grasses then Au knew why he'd been born never to speak until this moment and why the tongueless ones of God's world of water and earth and air had all sung to him and why tonight they had all been still and silent and waiting now the waiting was over now they were his voice and he was their song And this was their song to the child of the manger. Close your eyes precious one. The story is as old as Christmas. And yet, it's neither remembered nor told except by the tongueless ones the water, the wind, the rain, and the snow, the grasses, the trees, the rocks, and the earth. It will be told this Christmas by a wind rustling a tree of palm or pine, by water as it crowds against the bank or shore of brook, lake, river, and ocean, and all the scattered seven seas, by rain as it patters across the roofs and skylights. Yes, and by the singing grasses of the southern pampas, bush, and savannah, and the icy twang of sleeted stubble on prairie, heath, and plain. The few ears that listen may wonder at the strange, childlike quality in the voices of all these storytellers, but that's so very easy to understand. It is the bright, joyful, exultant tone of the boy who sang for them one early morning, one Christmas morning, one glorious morning, in Bethlehem.
5: Thank you, Roddy, for steering us so imaginatively.
4: Christmas time is associated by all of us with first beginnings and with the home. In spirit, we can all return to that little family of Bethlehem, centered at the Christmas crib, the baby Jesus.
2: From Hollywood, Family Theater has brought you transcribed Charles Taswell's Lullaby of Christmas. Narrated by Roddy McDowell, with Ruth Hussey as hostess. Our soloist was Lois Butler. Others in our cast were Michael Edwards, Ted DiCorsia, Irene Tedrow, and Bill Johnstone. Music was composed and conducted by Harry Zimmerman. Family Theater's director was Joseph F. Mansfield. This is Tony Lofrato expressing the wish of Family Theater that the blessing of God may be upon you and your home.
1: Listening to An Old Fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to an old-fashioned Christmas on this edition of Lifeline. As we continue our look back at old radio dramas and presentations from the golden years of radio, the nineteen thirties, forties, and fifties, this next program is a very rare and special adaptation of Handel's Messiah from the Theater of Romance, originally broadcast December twenty fourth of nineteen forty five.
2: Merry Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. From Hollywood, Edward Arnold in a special Christmas story, The Messiah. Edward Arnold stars as narrator and as George Frederick Handel in our special Christmas legend The Messiah. Our storyteller for today is the distinguished American actor Edward Arnold directed by Lud Gluskin. 1940, people were saying that George Frederick Handel could no longer write music. His enemies were saying that he never had been able to compose anything of great note. His friends were apologizing that he had been ill and that worry over money had kept him from writing the things that were inside him. He was 55 years old, and yet actually grief and pain had made him much older. He walked uncertainly down the street, his shoulders sagging on the Christmas Eve of this most important year of his life. People went by, some spoke, but he did not heed them. He was looking into an abyss that was dark and empty and without ending. The lifetime that had yawned ahead of him, a lifetime without music. And he knew he could not face it. He passed the church of the Blessed Madonna. He had no intention of pausing, but... uh, Mr. Handel! Mr. Handel! Did you call me father? Yes, Mr. Handel. Won't you come into the church a moment? We have it all decorated for Christmas. You haven't been inside for some time now. No, I, I haven't had much interest in religion. Those are strange words from your lips, Mr. Handel. Some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard in our church. You played yourself at the organ. Well, I'll play no more music, Father. I'm finished with music forever. That would be a great loss for the world, were it true. For your music has sometimes seemed, well, almost like the voice of God. It was so beautiful, so sacred. Please, come in for a moment, Mr. Handel. No, Father, I have no religion anymore. I... I have no God. Oh, my friend, listen to me. I'm not interested in a sermon, Father. Good night. Oh, uh, Merry Christmas. The good father stood there a moment, looking after Handel. And then he went inside to pray that this lamb that had strayed would find his way back to the flock. There was a little park next to the church, and Handel wandered into it, toward a bench. He was tired, he was heart-sick, he was cold, he was lonely. And suddenly, for the first time in his life, he wanted to die. Death seemed to beckon him through the snow, offering release and peace. And then he saw the woman coming toward him, a woman who seemed to move to music. A woman so beautiful that tears stung his eyes when she smiled at him.
5: Good evening, Mr. Handel.
2: I beg your pardon?
5: I said good evening, Mr. Handel.
2: You know my name?
5: Everyone who loves music knows your name, Mr. Handel. May I sit here by you for a moment?
2: It's quite cold. I was just leaving. I'm I'm not very good company, I'm afraid.
5: I know why you're unhappy, Mr. Handel. I heard you talking to Father Stanley. That's really why I spoke to you. I wanted to tell you that you're wrong about your music. You've written some great music. And I wanted to tell you, too, that you have yet to write your greatest music.
2: Indeed, madam. Well, let me tell you something now. I've written the last note I ever intend to write.
5: You can't stop writing music. You might as well say to the snow, don't fall tonight on London. You might as well say to the winds, pass London by tonight. You might as well say to the stars, shine no more on England. Or say to the world, I will write no more music. God has given you a great gift, and you must use it.
2: No, God has
5: forsaken me. God never forsakes anyone. People may forsake God, but they are never forsaken by him. Go into that church and make your peace with God, Mr. Henry. And then go home and bring that music to life that is waiting to be born.
2: All at once he wanted to get away from the woman. There was something in her eyes that made him ashamed and uncomfortable. A challenge and a fire in them that that made him feel lacking and inadequate. Once more, his torment took hold of him. Bitterness and an anguish and a frustrated grief closed in about him. And he walked now fast, now slow. And at last he found himself by the river. And once more, death beckoned. He walked over to the edge of the bridge. He clutched the rail a moment, stepped back to leave, That's not the way, Mr. Handel. He stared at her a moment. And then his anger left all bounds. What are you doing here? I followed you. How dare you follow me? What I do is my own concern and no one else's. No,
5: you're wrong. What you do is the concern of all mankind because there are still things you must do. Man lives for a purpose, Mr. Harry, not for his own pleasure. And it is for God to say when he has completed that purpose.
2: One of the few things a man can choose for himself is death if he wants to take Madison to his own hands. You have no right to interfere. You're tired and
5: it's late. Why don't you go home and rest?
2: He stood there an instant looking at her, and then he turned without a word and stamped off towards home. When he reached there, his man Charles was waiting at the door. I'm so glad you're home, sir. I was quite worried. Well, I'm going to bed. I I don't want to be disturbed until morning. Very well, sir. Good night, sir. Merry Christmas. Me? Oh, oh, Merry Christmas to you, Charles. He went to his room, shut the door and leaned wearily against it for a moment. His eyes closed. He wanted to cry, but he didn't know how to cry. He walked over to the organ where he had composed much of his music, put the lid down, definitely and finally. Then he sat down at his desk and started a letter to one of his best friends. My dear friend, when you receive this note, I shall be gone from this world and from this life. I feel that I have accomplished all that I can accomplish. And somehow, all the music is gone. There is nothing left inside me. Knowing this, I cannot bear to live. Yes, Charles, come in. You!
5: Good evening, Mr. Handel.
2: We meet again. What are you doing in my house? How did you get here? What do you want?
5: I would like to show you something that I think might mean music to you. Something I believe may mean your salvation.
2: Now, please, this concern over my salvation is becoming something of a nuisance.
5: Would you please go and leave me alone? You will find some beautiful words here, Mr. Handel. I think you could set these words to music beyond any music that has ever been written.
2: I'm not interested in seeing any words or writing any music. You understand that?
5: I think you will be interested when you read these words. This is a sacred story, Mr. Handel. It is called Messiah.
2: Will you look at it? No, I will not look at it.
5: I'll just leave it open here on the desk. I think one day you will thank me for that, Mr. Handel, on your knees. There it is when you're ready for it. Good night.
2: Left alone, Handel barely glanced at the manuscript lying on his desk. He added a line or two to his letter and put things in order and laid down to rest. But he couldn't rest. He tossed from one side to the other, got up and closed the door. He paced the floor. He lay down again, then got up and walked again. He couldn't keep away from that manuscript on the desk. Twice he reached for it and then let his hand fall. Finally, he bent over it and read a line. He was despised, despised and rejected. <laughs> The line sang itself. He could hear the music each time he said it. Reluctantly, unwillingly, he turned to the opening page and read the opening lines. And the words were music. The music came surging up from his heart and soul. Music that was joy and sorrow, heartbreak, ecstasy, faith and hope and resurrection. Music that was God. And the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. And shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no
3: end.
5: Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word.
2: Desperately in need of a place to arrive. Ah, we have no room. We've asked at almost every house in Bethlehem for shelter. My wife is ill. We must rest somewhere. I'd like to help you, but every room is full. Um, there is a stable in back of the inn. Perhaps you could sleep tonight there. Thank you. Thank you. I am most grateful. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger and suddenly there was with the
3: angel a multitude of the
2: heavenly hosts praising God! <laughs> came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go now even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe, lying in the manger.
4: listen to Mr. Handel play that organ. I have never heard music like that in my life. I'm worried about
2: Mr. Handel. He's hardly been out of the room for four weeks. Every time I've gone in, he's been playing the organ or writing music on paper. When I've taken him food, he's barely glanced at it. I don't think he even sees me when I go in and out. He stopped. Listen. Mr. Handel, is there something I can do for you, sir? No, 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 I'm going out. Where is is there something I can get you, sir? Yeah. No, 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 I'm, I'm going out. There's a woman I, I've got to find. A woman I want to get down on my knees and find. A woman, sir? Yes, she brought me this, this, this music, these words. She brought me this work, Messiah. You saw her, you let her in on Christmas Eve. No woman was here on Christmas Eve. She was here, I tell you. She brought me this manuscript. No, sir, I brought you that manuscript. It's the poem Mr. Charles Jennings brought here and left for you. I put it on your desk while you were asleep. You? You brought it to me? Yes, sir. You brought it to me. George Frederick Handel turned and ran from the house. He ran through the streets, holding the music of the Messiah tight against him. He never paused. Although it was some distance until he reached the church, he went up the steps, and inside the church, slowly hesitantly, tears rolling down his face, he stumbled down the aisle to the altar, and he laid his Messiah on the altar for payment, and then... George Frederick Handel, and down on his knees and gave thanks to read you what the poet Heine wrote about a certain book. He said, it is plain, it's a plain old book, modest as nature itself and simple too, a book of unpretending workday appearance, like the sun that warms us or the bread that nourishes us. And the name of this book is simply the Bible. Many of us have read passages from the Bible today, but why not make Bible reading a daily habit? Between the covers of this plain old simple book, you'll find peace of soul and very often the solution of many a disturbing mental problem. Colgate Tooth Powder, Halo Shampoo. Join in thanking Mr. Edward Arnold, who appeared through the courtesy of Metro-Golden-Mayer, the entire cast and the theater of romance singers...
1: Listening to An Old Fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you. Back with more in a moment.
0: Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military.
1: Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.